Well, good morning again, everybody. It's, uh, like I said, just a real privilege to be able to be here with you today and open up God's Word with you. You know, in, uh, in the course of any man's pastorate, there builds up around him, especially once you get to, like, you know, the 10-year mark, that sort of thing, a, a sort of body of legend and lore of mistakes that that pastor has made through, through the life of the church. Uh, the ones that make it into that body of legend and lore are not, not the ones that are actually like real mistakes where you've really messed something up badly. It's the ones that are kind of funny, and people tell those stories over fire pits and all, all the rest. So, so, for example, you know, when, when Matt uh, almost had you vote somebody into membership at Third Avenue Baptist Church this morning, right? That's something that you guys will talk about for a long time. Uh, I did the same thing when I got to Third Avenue, so you should not hold that kind of thing against Matt. It's just it happens. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. Uh, when we finished up the reform, finally at Third Avenue, we were adopting the, the new constitution, uh, or new, I think it was the new statement of faith of the church. I stood up at the podium because I was the chairman of the elders, and I said, all right, this is it, guys. We've come to the end of the, the reform. I mean, Semper Reformandi, yes, but we've come to the end of like the big reform of, of Third Avenue, and this is a big moment. So all those in favor of adopting this document as the statement of faith of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, <laughs> say aye. And there was this deafening silence across the room. And I thought, oh my goodness, it's going to fail. And I looked down and Aaron Minikoff was mouthing up at me, you said Capitol Hill. And so I just turned around. It was so embarrassing. Um, there have been uh, more that have made it into the legends and lores of my pastorate, some of which I'm not even going to tell you about this morning, but you, you at Third Avenue will know what, what some of those are. I, I am thrilled that the book of legend and lore of Matt's mistakes began like right at the very moment, though, of the founding of River City Baptist Church, when to the servers of the Lord's Supper, he said, okay, go. <laughs> that was excellent. That was really excellent. But, but hey, in the Lord's providence, it's not that bad, right? Because when Jesus launched the church, basically that's what he said, right? <laughs> Go, therefore, into all the earth and do the thing. So I, I think in the Lord's providence, he saved you from uh, something that could have been much funnier, actually, but uh, was actually pretty profound, actually. Okay, go. I mean, that's what you're going to do as a church uh, from, from this day forward. You're going to go into all the world, and you're going to make disciples, calling people to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to do this morning, though, is look at one particular chapter of, of the New Testament with you that's a, a little bit odd. I, I actually preached this chapter of the Bible uh, in my own church a, a, a few years ago. Um, and it's weird because when you're standing in your own pulpit, essentially what you're doing when you preach this chapter of the New Testament is that you're preaching your own job description. And, and that's odd because what Paul is telling uh, Titus to do uh, is, is set in order these churches and, and put elders in them. And he describes what the job of an elder is. It's a little bit less awkward for me today because I'm, I'm not one of your elders, right? So I get to preach the job description of the three men that you've installed as, as elder, and in particular, Matt, as, as the senior pastor, lead pastor. I don't know what you're calling him. But also, I get to preach a little bit from Titus 1 about your job description as members of the church. And so at the outset of, uh, uh, of the launching of a church, this is a really important chapter to look at, I think. So turn, if you've got a Bible, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And I'm going to start reading right, right up there at the top in verse 1. Paul writes there, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. At uh, Third Avenue, what I like to do when I'm preaching expositionally, which is what this kind of preaching is, meant to just expose the Word of God to you, that's where the word expositional comes from, uh, is that I like to study the text, figure out what the main point of the text is, and then try to distill that into one or two short little sentences and give that to my congregation as the main idea of the sermon. Because if I'm doing this expositional thing right, the main idea of the text ought to be the main idea of what I'm preaching in the sermon. I shouldn't just use it as a kind of diving board. So uh, I think the main idea of Titus chapter 1 is, is, is basically this. What you are about to start doing here as a church may look right now really small and insignificant to you. But it is really a matter of life and death, even eternal life and death. And I'll say it again, if you're a note taker, this is like, these are like the two sentences you're going to want to write down because you'll be able to look back at it and think about it later. If you're, if you're not a note taker, it literally would not kill you to write down these two sentences right here. <laughs> what you're about to start doing here as a church may look small and insignificant to you, but it is a matter of life and death, even eternal life and death. Let me give you a little background because it'll help you understand what, what Paul, why Paul is saying these things to uh, this fellow Titus, he wrote this short little letter to a close friend of his, Titus, uh, who was obviously, as you, as you read through the book and you sort of read Acts and all the rest, Titus was obviously a man of considerable talents. He was a Greek, which means he was a Gentile, not a Jew, a fact which I, it, it had to have been in Paul's heart when he wrote verse 2 there, you are my true child in a common faith. He's pulling Titus sort of into the fold. Titus had gone with Paul on this trip to Jerusalem, a kind of test case to make it clear that uh, you didn't have to become a Jew first before you became a Christian, so it makes it a big deal that circumcision isn't going to be necessary to become a Christian. And then when Timothy, Paul's sort of right-hand man, sort of failed, it looks like, to bring peace between Paul and the church in Corinth when they got into a big fight with each other, Paul sent Titus to go fix the problem, and Titus became instrumental in reconciling that church with, with Paul. 
We know from reading this that when this letter was written, Paul had left Titus on Crete, which is a mountainous, sort of craggy, rocky island off the coast of Greece. And the whole point of leaving Titus on that island was to help set in order, as Paul says it, some matters in in, in a few new churches, apparently, that had begun there. It's hard to say exactly when the book was written. Uh, You can look at the uh, events in the book of Acts and the story that's that's told in, in that book. And the problem is that there's really nowhere to fit this precisely in the book of Acts. Uh, you just can't get it in there. And so the most likely explanation is that when Acts ended, Paul's life did not end, right? I mean, he, he's not killed at the end of Acts. He's on under house arrest. He's even looking forward to going to, to other places. And the most likely explanation is that eventually he was released after Acts 28. And he eventually maybe even made his way to Spain, which in the Roman mind would have been the uttermost part of the earth, as Jesus put it. If that's true, then probably all three of what we call uh, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and then, and then Titus, were written during that time when Paul, after Paul uh, was uh, uh, released from prison. It's a fascinating letter because it reveals Paul's heart for these new churches on the island of Crete. You, you don't just get kind of cold clinical instructions. This is not a staff meeting between Paul and Titus. You get to see Paul's heart for the church. And what you see in the letter is that being a church on the island of Crete at this time was not easy for these people. It was a hard time. These Christians were under attack, and they were the same struggles, it turns out, that every church faces at one point or another. The same struggles, in fact, that you, as River City Baptist Church, are going to face. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year, but eventually you're going to face everything that Paul says these Christians in Crete are going to face. In fact, I think that's why the book is included in the Bible, right? I mean, the books of the Bible are in there for a reason. The Lord decided to put them in there for a reason. I think the reason that this one is in there is to encourage churches when we face the same kinds of temptations and the same kinds of pressure. So what that means is that this book is highly relevant to us today. Because even if we're not facing everything that the Cretan Christians were facing, we need to be prepared for it, right? I mean, if you, if you don't prepare yourselves for, str- for struggles that are coming, you fall to those struggles. If you wait until, you know, the enemy's sword is already in your heart to put your armor on, it's too late. You've got to put the armor on first. You've got to be prepared. I think if you look down at your Bibles, uh, you can probably see pretty easily three divisions, three sections, three paragraphs in the, in the text. You've got one to four there, and then there's another paragraph from... 5 to 9, and then the last paragraph from 10 to 16. And those three paragraphs are going to form the three points of the sermon. So here here they are. Paragraph number 1 and point number 1, the church's driving motivations. The church's driving motivations. Number 2, the church's leaders. And then number 3, the church's enemies. So brothers and sisters, this is a big day for you. I mean, you have, you have become a church, and that is a big deal. So what I'm hoping from looking at Titus 1 is that this text and this sermon from the text will stir your soul basically to understand the eternal stakes of what you have signed up for this morning. I hope it will help you understand what you are all about as River City Baptist Church, and, and therefore to decide like right here and right now, I'm going to give my life to strengthening and encouraging and defending this church. All right, point number one, the church's driving motivations. Uh, If you look at verses one to four there, like most letters of the ancient world, this one begins just with the writer of it, Paul, the apostle, introducing himself, and then basically he addresses it to Titus. 
like he normally does in almost every single one of his letters. He introduces himself as an apostle, which means a specially sent one of Jesus Christ. He also mentions that he is a servant or a slave of God. And then in that introduction, in those first couple of verses, you've got a couple of phrases that let us into Paul's heart for the church and, and show us really what drives him to do what he does for the good of the church. So look there, first of all, he says he's an apostle and a servant for the sake, right? A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with or, or really that leads to godliness. Now, what's he saying there? Well, what, what he's saying is that Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's gospel would not fail. That's what he's saying. He knew that his work wasn't going to be in vain. He knew that he wasn't going to go out into the world and preach and throw the seed of the gospel and there would be no return. He knew that wasn't going to happen because he knew that God had, in his sovereignty and providence, determined that the gospel was going to succeed. That he had chosen men and women from every nation who were going to hear that word, hear that gospel, and who would, in fact, believe. And Paul says, everything I do, everything that I give my mind to, and give my hand to, I am doing it, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. I know they're out there, and I'm doing it for them, to gather them into the church. It's an incredibly important thing for you as a church to remember, that there are people in Richmond who will respond in faith to the preached gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, this is not just a wish on God the Father and God the Son's part, that some people would respond well. The Father did not look at the Son and say, hey, Son, let's give this a shot. It may or may not work. You may go down there and become a human and live your life and die on the cross, and yeah, it may or may not work. He didn't say that. He said, I have my people down there that I want to save, and you're going to go save them. And the Son said, yes, Father, I will, because I love them. Paul knew that the gospel wasn't going to fail. Look also there that he says it's not just their conversion that he's interested in. It's their continued growth in Christ that he worked for. Their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. Notice, notice the logic there. It's knowledge of the truth, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a growing knowledge of the truth. And then what happens is that as, as you grow in the knowledge of the truth is that you also grow, he says, in godliness, which means that the Christian message the Word of God that you're going to hear here week after week after week is not a dead message. When you sit under the preaching of the Word and you let those words go into your ears and then down into your heart, it doesn't just sit there. The Word of God, as Hebrews says, is living and active. And when that Word takes root in your heart, it does something. It goes somewhere. It, it works. Commit yourselves to, sit, to setting yourself under the Word of God regularly like weekly that's what christians have done for 2100 years now or whatever we've been sitting under the preaching of god's word week after week after week because we know that the gospel and the word of god is not a dead message it gets into our hearts and it works so that's the first thing that paul says is his driving motivation i do this i do everything that i do for the sake of the elect and for their growth in the knowledge of truth, and therefore their growth in godliness. I want these people to be called out and then pushed forward in holiness. That's what he wants. That's his first driving motivation. Second, look in verse 2. 
He says he is an apostle of Jesus and a servant of God in hope of eternal life. So Paul's great end, his great goal, was not some tiny little thing. He's not interested in just creating a new religion. He's not interested in just creating a bunch of little organizations around the world. He's not interested in creating the tiny little thing of a name for himself. It's a great hope that Paul works for. It's, it's, it's the hope of eternity, of joy and happiness and peace with God. I want you to notice, too, that for Paul, this is also a sure hope. I mean, our culture's messed the word up badly, hope. Uh, what, what hope means to most of our culture and most of our world is it's just a kind of wish, right? I hope, I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl sometime in the next 150 years, right? That's, that's my hope, but uh, it's just a wish, right? I have no certainty that that's going to happen, like zero certainty that that's ever going to happen, right? It's just a wish. It's a, it's a hope. And we say we use that word all the time to mean I wish that this thing would happen, but I have no real certainty that it's going to. That is not the way that word is used in the Bible. And every time you read it, you should not read it as a wish that they're not certain is going to happen. You should read it as Paul saying, I do what I do because of the certainty of eternal life. It's that kind of hope. A hope that comes directly from the mouth of God who never lies and who promised it ages ago. So it's a sure and certain hope. And now Paul says, I've been entrusted with declaring that hope to the world. So that's the second driving motivation. He does it for the sake of the elect and their growth in godliness. He does it also in hope of eternal life. So, so wrap it all up, right? Take those two driving motivations and see something of Paul's heartbeat here. What he does, he does for the sake of the elect, their faith, their growth in truth and godliness. And he does it all in the hope of eternal life for all those people. So that's what it's all aiming for. Now, here's the thing for you and for me. Those two driving motivations, Paul says, that's what motivates me in my apostleship, right? In my servanthood of, of, of Christ. But those two driving motivations in Paul's mind aren't just apostolic motivations. They're not just for him. They are deeply Christian motivations. They're the motivations that ought to drive the church in its work. It is so, so easy for a church to forget what it is all about. I mean, you look around and you, and you, and you see what, what's going on here, you know. You see things go wrong. You see things that have to be fixed. You see that, you know, you're not a huge congregation, right? And it's easy to look around and say, man, this thing, this thing is just utterly and completely insignificant, I mean, we have stadiums that can pull together 100,000 people, you know, at the drop of a hat. And here, here we are, 150 of us, sitting here in a room, that, in a building that we don't even own. What are we? It's so easy to forget what we are and just think, gosh, we, we are just a kind of, you know, barely glorified Rotary Club or something. Barely glorified Lions Club that's trying its best to do some good things for some people. But brothers and sisters, I, I, what I want you to do today is lift up your eyes and see clearly what has happened here this morning as River City Baptist Church has come into being because it is a cosmic thing. And heaven and hell both were watching it. Because you, Do you know what you did this morning when you became a church, when you made those promises of the covenant together, you took the Lord's Supper? You know what you did? You came on the radar of both heaven and hell as a fully credentialed embassy of the high king of heaven in this rebellious world. 
you ran up the flag of the king again here in Richmond, Virginia. And that's a huge thing. And the work you do and we do in Louisville is, is huge. We strive and work to preach the gospel so the Holy Spirit can work in hearts and draw people to faith in Jesus. We live together and worship together so we can mature in our knowledge of the truth and grow in godliness. And we do all of those things with our eyes set on a sure hope of eternal life. We exist, we work for the sake of the elect and in hope of eternal life. And those are not small things. You're going to do a lot of service in this church in a whole lot of different ways. Every single one of you is because planting a church, starting a church, and it doesn't get any easier, by the way. I mean, even when the church grows and you've got hundreds of people in the church, it's still a lot of work. And you're going you're gonna to do that work in everything that you do. Keep this perspective in mind. When, when you volunteer for the nursery, I mean, lift up your eyes. Like, look high and long with your eyes, not, not, not low and short, right? Learn to cultivate that discipline. Look high and long, not low and short in the service that you do. So when you're serving in the, in the child care, in the nursery, try to lift your eyes up off the dirty diapers that you have to change and consider that that little toddler who's running around one day may bow his knee to King Jesus. And for these few minutes, you get to care for him. And you have no idea how God is going to use you in those few minutes, right? And what, what do you do with a little two-year-old, three-year-old boy when you're, when you're with him? Maybe you're playing, you're playing trucks, right? And you have no idea how God is going to use you playing trucks with that little guy, potentially to bring the little guy to Jesus later on in life, right? I mean, I mean you, you take your little truck and you ram it up against the wall, and you have no idea but that God might be using the laws of physics to cause your truck to hit that wall in such a way as to create such a spectacular wreck that that little boy now looks at you as the greatest thing since a sippy cup. You may have earned, through no fault of your own or no credit to you, you may have earned some respect of that little boy that one day you'll be able to tell him something about Jesus and he'll listen to you. You have no idea. When you're sitting there reading the, the book in the, in, in the child care ministry to the little girl for the 150th time, you have no idea but that the Lord might be using that moment to teach her that Jesus loves her and that she needs to bow her knee to him as Savior. You have no idea. Do everything with your eyes high and long. When you make a meal for your small group, when you sit down over coffee with somebody, when you sweep the floors, when you fix the sound system, do everything you do with your eyes high and long. Do it for the sake of the elect and do it in the hope of eternity. You've got to let that color your perception of life in the church because otherwise it's too hard. It's a big job and therefore it's got to have big motivations. And I promise you, getting RCBC to be known in the city of Richmond or whatever is not going to be a big enough motivation to make you stick with it. It just won't be. Your eyes have got to be high and long. They've got to be on the elect, and they've got to be on the hope of eternity. To you, Matt, in, in, in particular, you've got to know right off the bat that the work of a pastor is, is not, at least to the human eye, a, a glorious piece of work. It, it, it's just not. There... There are certain jobs that glory and excitement just sort of come from the nature of, of the work, right? There's some glory in making a lot of money. There's some glory in interacting with powerful people. There's some glory in affecting world events. There's nothing like that. 
as a pastor, nothing. Because you're going to spend like the majority of your time doing stuff like running off copies and fixing AV problems and preventing arguments and disagreements and trying to maintain the unity of a small little group of fallen but redeemed human beings, which is what all of these people are. That's what you're going to spend your days doing. It's not glorious work, but it is good work. And the, and the thing about it is that I think it's deliberately a work that is designed by God not to bring glory to you, but to bring glory to Jesus. And you just got to trust that that's happening, even in the days that are filled up with minutia and frustrations. The work of the pastor, you need to hear, all of you need to hear. The work of a church is not made glorious by its bigness. I mean, you guys here at River City Baptist Church, you are not a big congregation. You're not. You're like 67 of you or something, right? You're not a big congregation. I mean, maybe you will be someday. Maybe not. Who cares? Who cares? Don't worry about it. That's not the point. Matt, you just work faithfully. You pastor faithfully. You preach faithfully. You pray faithfully. You lead faithfully. And you just do those things for a long, long, long time. This whole thing is not meant to bring you glory. It's meant to bring Jesus glory. So settle that in your heart right now. Here's the second thing. Number two, the church's leaders. The church's leaders. So after verse four, introductions are done. Paul jumps right into why he's writing. He left Titus in Crete, on Crete, to do a job. If you look at verse five, it is to set things in order in the churches and to appoint elders in every town. Now, now just right there, just in those words in verse 5, I think there's something super interesting and super instructive. I want you to notice that Paul thinks structure in churches, government in churches, organizations in churches, bylaws and constitutions and rules and policies and procedures and all the rest, he thinks all of that is a good thing. To have things put in order, to have recognized, appointed leadership, Paul thinks those things are good for a church. So you need to understand that to, have, to, to be organized, to have rules and systems and practices and structures and, and recognize leadership is not something that you know, we pastors just, just made up at some point along the way. It's not something we just do for fun. God is a God of order, not a God of confusion. And so he expects us to be a people who can live well under order and even under leadership and authority. So Titus is told here by Paul to set the churches in order, which means, among, among other things, I'm sure, appointing or installing elders. The, 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 the word is a very general sort of word. It just, it just sort of means to make it happen, right? Just make sure it, it happens. That's what the word means. There's no indication here of exactly the process of that. I mean, our best guess is probably that it was something similar to Acts 6, right, where the church picks its leaders, but then the apostles sort of appoint or install them to that work. But either way you look at it, it's crucial work that, Paul, that, that uh, Titus is doing here in helping these churches establish their, their leadership. We're going to talk about why it's so crucial in, in the third and last point, the church's enemies, because that's where it really becomes critical. But it's enough to say for now that the main job of these leaders of the church was to be the church's guardians against threats, both internal and external. And so... With a job that important, Paul spends a paragraph reminding Titus and through him also the, the whole church to whom this letter would have been read, what kind of men should lead them. So let's, let's look at that. First thing to notice here about these men is that 
Paul calls these leaders three different things in this second paragraph. In verse 5, he calls them elders. And in verse 7, he calls them overseers and then stewards. All of these words were well known among, among the people at the time, right? It, he didn't have to spend a lot of time defining them because everybody knew what those words meant. So elders, for example, were well known among the people. In synagogues in the Sanhedrin, every village and town had elders. Everybody knew what they did. They led whatever organization it was that they were elders of. Uh, they were probably old, the older men of the synagogue, the older men of the city at first, but it, it, it didn't, by the time the word's being used, it, it, that's not what it meant. It just meant the leadership function of those men. They led, directed, and governed. Overseer, in verse 7 there, refers to one function of an elder. It's not talking about a separate office. And one of the things that elders do is that they watch over the life and doctrine of the church. And they do this, Paul says, as God's stewards. Now, what's a steward? Well, a steward was, was somebody who was a servant of, say, a wealthy master or a king. And if the master or the king went away for a time, oversight and authority of the, the master's or king's household was given to the steward. In fact, one of the uh, emblems of office at various times through history for a steward has been a, a set of keys, right? You could wear it on your, on your the, you know, sort of lapel or you could have the actual keys on your, uh, on your belt. And the, the idea was that you had control of the master's house. You could open doors when you wanted to or close doors. And none of the rest of the servants had the authority to open what you had shut or to shut what you had opened, right? But the point of being a steward is that even though you had the master's authority for a moment until he got home, the master was coming home. And you would have to give an account to him for every door that you opened and every door that you shut for the way that you managed his household. Hebrews 13 says that elders keep watch over your souls as men who will give an account. Have you ever thought about that? That particular burden that elders of your church take on? I mean, it, it weighs on me as an elder that, that one day when I get to, to heaven and bow before the Lord, there will be a sort of separate accounting from me and all the other people who have served as elders. And it will be the Lord Jesus going, what about, what about Josh Horner? You had him for like 10 years. How'd that go? What about Ben, what about ben Burkholz? Right? And down the list he'll go. And I will give an account for every person who has been under my care as a pastor. Brothers and sisters, you, you now have three men who will be in that same room with me. Right now, the Lord, if, if one of them were to die, the Lord would say to him, so you had him for about an hour and a half. How did that, how'd that go? Right? But as time goes on, the account will get deeper and the account will get longer and it is a heavy account. Friends, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as you live here at River City. Keep that in mind as you pray for your elders, as you pray for Matt. And keep that in, keep that in mind especially for Matt as you talk with him, as you talk about him. Encourage him. And do it regularly. I mean, it's almost impossible for, for Matt to ever be able to stand in this pulpit and say, you guys need to encourage me, right? That's, that's just almost impossible. But I'm telling you, encourage your pastor. It's hard work. He's going to be dealing with things on a daily, weekly basis that, 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 for the most part, you have no idea is going on in people's lives. And yet it's going to weigh heavily on Matt. I remember walking past a 
Sunday school room years ago. It was a young guy, a seminary student, who was teaching a Sunday school class. And I just paused for a second outside the door. He didn't know I was there to listen to what he was saying. And he said, I, I, you know, I know. He was talking about flattery, I think, in, in one of the uh, passages of the Bible. And he said, you know, I know that a lot of you uh, just at the end of sermons just want to rush back to that back door and, and tell Greg what an encouragement he was to you today. And he said, don't do that because you'll make his head big. And I just thought, oh, my gosh. You know, do you, you want to kill me? I mean, is that literally what you're trying to do here? You, you, know, what, you know what happens in, the, in a human heart, any human heart? I'm not even talking just about pastors. But do you know what happens in, in a human heart when encouragement is warranted but it is held back? Do you know what happens? Bitterness and resentment begin to grow in that heart. It just does. But do you know what happens in a Christian heart when encouragement is, want, is warranted and it comes? A Christian will not just store that stuff up so that his head and his heart expand. He'll just be all about the business of taking that encouragement and throwing it to Jesus. Don't let bitterness and resentment grow in the hearts of your pastors. Encourage them and encourage them often. Anyway, after telling Titus to appoint elders, he lays out some descriptions of what a man like this should be like, who an elder should be. And the overriding idea mentioned twice is that he should be above reproach. doesn't mean perfect. It does mean exemplary, like an example, like somebody that you could look to as an example of what a faithful Christian looks like. Two categories, really, that he talks about. First, he's to be a godly husband and father. doesn't mean a man has to be a husband and father to be an elder. Paul wasn't a father, wasn't a, wasn't a husband, neither was Titus, most likely, and yet they're leaders of the church. But that was the norm, right? Most of the men who were, who were elders in a town, elders in a church, would have been older. Most would have been husbands and fathers. And so Paul kind of deals within that norm and says that if a guy is a husband and father, he ought to be a godly one. If you look more specifically there, he's, he's to be the husband of one wife. There's lots of discussion about what that means. Does it mean you have to be married? No, Paul wasn't. Titus wasn't. Well, does it mean you can only have one wife through your whole life, right? As if, you know, your, your wife dies and you cannot now remarry. No, that's, that's not very likely. Paul's really happy in 1 Corinthians 7 to say that, you know, if, if a spouse has died, you're, you're free to remarry, right? Probably what it just means is that an elder is to be a model of marital faithfulness and it's specifically forbidding polygamy, which was a huge deal in, in those days. You can't be married to two people at the same time. What about that phrase, his children are believers? I mean, does that mean an elder's children have to be Christians, like baptized members of the church? I mean, that, that would disqualify a whole lot of pastors, you know, including those whose children are sort of too young for that. No, I don't, I don't think so. The, the word there that's translated, at least in the ESV, as believers is really just faithful. That's all it means. His, his children are faithful. That's what that means. There are places in the New Testament where that word means Christians. So 1 Timothy 6.2, for instance. But there are a lot of other places in the New Testament where it just means reliable or obedient. So in 1 Timothy 3.11, Paul says that women deacons should be faithful. Same word, in all things. That doesn't mean Christians in all things. It means faithful and reliable in all things. In Hebrews 3.2, the author says that Jesus was faithful. It doesn't mean Jesus was a Christian. Jesus is the Christ. In Hebrews 11.11, God himself is said to be faithful. That does not mean God the Father is a Christian. It doesn't even make sense. It just means faithful to keep his promises. So I don't think it means believing. I don't think it means Christians. I think the 
I think the best way to take it is just faithful. And the reason is because Paul even goes on in, the, in that sentence to say what he means. He means specifically that children aren't open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You see that? He just explains it. That's, that's what I mean. In other words, an elder needs to have the ability to maintain order in his home because if he can't, then how in the world is he going to be able to maintain order and faithfulness in the church? So that's the first thing he says about this man. He's to be a godly husband and father. Second, he gives a, a fairly long list of things that describe what kind of person an elder should be. So he gives five things that, that an elder is not supposed to be. That's, that's verse 7. And then seven things he is supposed to be. So look at, look at verse 7. A man who's an elder is not to be arrogant. In other words, not overbearing, not domineering, not always insisting on his own way, not always just lording it over others. But what the church needs are, are, are men who are humble, who are gracious, who are kind, who are ready to serve, just like Jesus was humble and gracious and kind and ready to serve. He says they're not to be quick-tempered. <laughs> Got to be able to deal with difficult situations without getting angry. Got to be a man who makes peace and turns away wrath. I mean, you know, when I, uh, when I left on, on Friday morning to head here, head, well, I had another thing to go to, but then another thing. The, the, the morning right before that, I had gotten an email that was just infuriating to me. I mean, Matt, you're, you're going to get those emails, and you're going to get them at the worst times. You're going to get those emails at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning. And the trick of being an elder is to not be infuriated by it. You're going to have people who are unreasonable. You're going to have elders who are unreasonable. Of course, not Sebastian and not Josh, but in the future, you will. And at a certain level, it's going to be infuriating, but you can't get infuriated, period. Paul says, don't be a drunkard. Don't be controlled by a desire for strong drink. He says, don't be violent, which really means don't be pugnacious. Don't be ready for a fight, right? Elders should be seeking peace in any situation, not just itching for a fight. I mean, I think, I think Matt, that that is the most important lesson about the pastorate that I've learned over the last 11 and a half years that nobody ever told me. You have to be a peacemaker. You have to be one who is constantly seeking to bring peace in order to be a good pastor. Like Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the confronters. I mean, you got to confront sometimes, right? That just, that just happens, but it requires, it requires wisdom to know when that is. But I just, I just want you to notice Paul's admonition here is don't be one who's spoiling for a fight. Don't be greedy for gain, he says, controlled by a desire for money. You should be hospitable, a lover of strangers. You should be a lover of good. You should be self-controlled, upright, and holy, disciplined. Now, pause right there for just a second. I want you to notice that this whole description of an elder right here so far focuses on who an elder is and not what an elder can do. Now, that, that's not to say that abilities to teach the Scripture and manage the household of God and all the rest of it aren't important. We'll, we'll get there. But it is to say, friends, that the ability to teach all by itself does not make a man fit to be an elder. The men who lead you, the men to whom you look as spiritual examples, they ought to be men who are living a life of love and self-control and discipline and, and gentleness like Jesus. And you, if you're a teacher, if you're a student of theology, 
If you're somebody who aspires one day to be an elder, you need to understand that the ability to captivate a room, the ability to win an argument, wrestle folks down in a debate is not going to make you an elder. You need to be able to love. You need to be able to bring peace. You need to be able to keep your own life disciplined and self-controlled. That's the mark of an elder. The other thing Paul says here that an elder needs to do is hold firm to the word as taught. Well, why? So that he can give instruction in sound, healthy doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So that's why when, you know, I'm sure when Matt was considering who to nominate as elders, why when, when we consider who to nominate as elders at Third Avenue, we ask them a battery of theological and biblical questions, right? I mean, you got to sit in, in a room at Third Avenue with 14 other men sort of sitting around the table with you, and all 14 of us get to fire theological questions at you. We want to make sure that you're sound in doctrine, that you're, able to, that you're able to teach, that you're able to understand the scriptures and use them to confront and rebuke error. And that's important exactly because of what comes next in this letter. And that's point number three, the church's enemies. See, the reason the church is in Crete needed men who held fast to the word, who can instruct and rebuke, is that this church apparently, or these churches, apparently were being racked by people who were denying the gospel in some particular way. We don't exactly know. It's hard to say precisely what the false teaching was. You can get some idea of it from, from here in Titus and Paul's other letters, First and Second Timothy in particular. I mean, apparently they were interested in some kind of Jewish myths. We don't know what that means. Probably just fanciful stories that they spun uh, from the Old Testament. I don't know if you ever saw the, uh, uh, the Hollywood movie Noah, right, with the like rock creatures and all the rest of it. That's probably the kind of thing that we're talking about, just fanciful stories that were just spun out from the actual facts as they're presented in the Bible, something like that. Also, they were teaching man-made laws. They were putting requirements on Christians that they insisted were necessary to be morally pure, you look at First Timothy and you find out that they had outlawed marriage, they had outlawed eating certain kinds of food, and they said, these are the things that you can't do in order to be a Christian. The trouble was that they were taking that and they were saying, okay, I'm not married and I'm not eating these certain kinds of food, but I can be involved in all kinds of immorality over here. And they were wrecking their faith and wrecking their lives. So Paul says in 16 that even though they profess to know God, they're disobedient and detestable. I mean, the situation was just terrible. This teaching had gotten so bad, Paul says, that it was upsetting whole families. Now, you've got to know what upsetting means. It doesn't just mean, oh, I'm, up, I'm emotionally upset, right? That's not what it means. Upset means to overturn, right? Like a, like a boat that you have upset, you have overturned it. Paul says this false teaching was overturning families, ruining them. That word sound in verse 9 and 13 is helpful to us, I think, in seeing what this was doing. Instead of making the church sound and healthy, it was making the church unhealthy. It was poisonous to the body. So Paul says that Titus, along with the elders of the church, ought to rebuke these people severely and silence them. They should act, in other words, as shepherds and guardians of the church. But, but look at 13. If you look at 13, you can see that even there, the goal that Paul is setting in front of Titus and these elders isn't just to sort of pull out the Holy Ghost bazooka and blast these people to kingdom come. As fun as that might have been for them. Now the goal was to call them to repentance so that they would become sound and healthy again in the faith. Now, I'm going to hope that sort of an hour and a half into your existence as River City Baptist Church, 
that your church is not rampant quite yet with false teaching, right? I'm just going to trust that that's the case. But I think, even so, right here at the outset, there are a couple of things to learn from Paul's kind of wrangling with these false teachers. First of all, here's the first thing I want you to learn. Be careful that you do not become one. Be careful that you don't become one. I know all this false teaching that Paul is mentioning right here sounds exotic, but the fact is these errors and other church-destroying errors are really not that far from us, are they? I mean, how incredibly easy is it to read some book or watch some YouTube video or get a hold of some political idea and refuse to listen to anybody else who's charged with teaching you the truth of God. It's incredibly easy to do that. Friends, don't be so arrogant as to think that you all by yourself are competent to avoid error. You're not. Your mind is redeemed, but your mind is also fallen still, and you're susceptible to error. I mean, for that matter, it's also not beyond us in the least to start handing down commandments of men like these false teachers were, things that we declare to be off-limits, right? Or things that we declare to be required for a person to be a real Christian, even though the Bible says nothing about them. I mean, you've probably known churches. I've, I've known various churches that have had these kinds of things. Commandments of men that have been handed down. I mean, in my own experience, I've had churches that have been racked by arguments about, you know, government health insurance, for instance, or cloth diapers, for instance, or shopping at big box stores, for instance. Masks and no masks, vaccines and no vaccines. We're so susceptible to handing down commandments of men. And one of the job of your new three elders is to make sure that what it means to be a Christian is not muddied up in this church with laws and requirements that God never placed on his people. That's their job. Take care, friends, that you keep scripture as your standard and that you don't become one of these false teachers in this church. Here's the second thing. Just kind of, again, encourage your elders in their guard against false teaching. Encourage your elders in their guard against false teaching. I mean, I, I hope even this morning as, you, as you've elected and now installed elders of River City, I hope it's a source of enormous joy and comfort to you that God has given you elders who are committed to guarding this church against Satan's schemes. I mean, these are the men who, who are going to take their place on the walls of the fortress that is River City Baptist Church and keep the swords drawn in order to guard against threats. To the church. I, I remember the first time I was a member for just a moment of a, of a church that had elders who thought of themselves as elders, right? Now, I remember sitting in one of their elders' meetings. I was, you know, just up against the wall, just young 20, 22-year-old guy, I think, just sitting up against the wall watching these men, and, 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 and they were praying for a subset of the members of the congregation, right? As, as you know, we, we've done that too at Third Avenue. Uh, every other meeting, we pray for a subset of the members and make our way through the entire membership over the course of a few months. And I remember sitting ag against that wall and just watching these men as they, were, as they were praying. And I had this wonderful sense of all of a sudden having spiritual air cover that I had never had before. And it was a deeply comforting feeling to know that that was the case. I, I hope, friends, 
I hope, River City Baptist Church, that you feel that, that you rejoice in it, and that you thank God for it. And I hope you'll encourage these three men who are taking on that work, even as you join them in it. You have big work to do. You have big, glorious work to do. You are a fully decked out embassy of the high king of heaven. Now go take the word of the gospel to Richmond and beyond. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you this morning for uh, the birth, for the launch of River City Baptist Church. We thank you again for Matt and for Josh and for Seb as they take on the work of leading this church and shepherding it. We pray for the members of this church, the 65, 67 of them, however many it is, Father. We pray that you would press on their hearts both the glory and the joy uh, and the wonder, but also the hard work uh, that they have taken upon themselves as members of this church. And Father, we pray that um, uh, uh, through your grace and by your Holy Spirit, that you would use the witness of this church um, to bring many, many people in the city of Richmond and beyond to bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We ask that in his name and always to his honor and glory. Amen.